0: This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about the television series Game of Thrones, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks about George R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, it talks in the context of the most recently released book, You've Been Warned.
1: Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. You're listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog.
0: And now, here's your host, Matt Murdick. Welcome back to another edition of Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. Appreciate you joining me this time for Season 6, Episode 4, The Book of the Stranger, written by the showrunners Benioff and Weiss and directed by Daniel Seckheim. Once again, we just heard an episode of Bubba and Stephanie commenting on Daniel Seckheim's directorial debut with this show and the last time (laughs) that he will direct this show, I suppose. Um, Before we get started with everything, this is a Monday cast and we normally do the music last on the Monday cast. And I'm going to change it up this time. I'm going to do the music first because it's really just a hodgepodge of things. But before we get to that, I do have some announcements regarding this podcast. First of all, I'm re-recording this podcast kind of last minute because I had said a lot of things in my prior recording of this podcast, and I have no guests this time. I have had no guests planned for this episode, period. So it was going to be just me, no one else this time around, regardless of that. Uh I had to re record it because at the time I'd interjected some personal thoughts about my father, how I was hoping that, like Danny, he would uh, be triumphant and be able to return home from breaking his hip. He has since passed. Um, by the time you hear this, it'll have been a week ago, Saturday. And I'm recording this on the Friday, about seventh day after his passing. Um, there's a lot of things going on here in regards to my mom, in regards to just doing so many things that we have to do in the process of not just grieving, but also in the process of the business of getting someone off of the books, so to speak. And all of that responsibility coupled with school, I'm just going to have to suspend the podcast. Not this episode, but I have one more pre-recorded episode with Bubba and Holly covering the door episode. Seems fitting that that will be episode 60 and we can end it on a nice even number. Now we will return for season eight for sure and possibly before then if I can figure out the formula as to how to balance school and work and all of these other responsibilities. Um, Since my father's passing, I won't say that we won't be back sooner, but I can guarantee that I will have figured out what the heck to do and how the heck to record by the time we get to season eight on April 14th. And we will be here for two podcasts a week. I'm hoping to have the sirens come on with me for each of those episodes. We will not have a fan call-in show um for years with podcast winterfell i did that where fans could call in podcast winterfell as far as i know is continuing to do that dj tim hines does a really good job with that so be sure to check their feed if you want to uh call into their show or what have you if they're continuing that um check out what they're going to do for season eight uh but dj dj tim hines Did a fabulous job taking over the fan call-in show after I had given the podcast ups. And I suspect that he will do the same this particular season. So if you want to voice your opinions that way directly to one of the podcasters, uh, be sure to stay with PodcastWinterfell.com for that. Uh, What we will have is an initial reaction on Sundays. And then we will have a uh, kind of a second watch thought later on in the week. Um, and the podcast will drop probably on Mondays and Thursdays, uh, just as they have been for this feed whenever I've been able to record and get them out to you. I know that I've been a little inconsistent in that, but I promise you for season eight, we will be consistent in that regard. Anyway, um, there is no need to flood me with sympathies and that kind of thing. I've already gotten my share of that over social media. And I I do appreciate your thoughts and your warmth and everything that um, you've extended me in terms of, in just the last episode, it was kind of all about me. I made John's resurrection all about me. Um, In this particular case, I did need to record this because I had made this particular prior recording all about dad and that just doesn't seem fitting and it would be a little bit painful uh, for me to release that. So with all that bummer news, (laughs) uh, remember that mattsaudioblog.com is your one-stop shop for all things this podcast. You can find back episodes of the podcast. You can find podcast app links. Uh, Please, if you can, leave me a written review on whatever app that you're using. If it allows it, it really helps me stay more noticeable among the 15 billion other Game of Thrones podcasts that are out there. And uh, if you want to contact me, I can't. I know that i had been mentioning a feedback date. I don't know if I'll be able to, hopefully by then, I'll be able to record any thoughts that you've had about Season 6. Um, in that context, um, you can feel free to submit stuff sending an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, m-a-t-t-s-audioblog at gmail.com, or you can tweet to mattsgotblog, m-a-t-t-s-g-o-t-blog, on Twitter, I think I said March 5th actually is the deadline date, but I'm not sure <laughs> anymore. Anyway, if you have feedback, just send it to me and maybe I can get a feedback podcast in before we start Season 8. Like I said, I don't know when I'll be back exactly, but I do know that at very latest we'll be back um, just shortly after April 14th, the Monday after with your first initial reaction podcast. And I don't know which of the girls is going to be on it, but um, maybe we can all get together a little bit before and, and talk about things that you all like to hear sometimes. I'm not going to do it, but you know, predictions or theories or what have you. If anybody wants to do that amongst the girls, then I'll be happy to accommodate them. And I suppose that that's all I have to say for right now. Um, let's get into the music, which is really... Just a lot of cool little things going on in this episode. Nothing all that major in terms of a new revelation or a new theme. Um, Just checking in on some of the themes and how well they're done this particular episode. That's next.
1: The music on Game of Thrones. They killed me, Ed, my own brothers.
0: You want me to stay here after that? Open the gate! So that, of course, as Sansa and Jon reunite for the first time since, what, the second episode of the very series? It's the first time they've seen each other? Been a long time. And it's a good example of one of the things that I find that's in common in this particular episode. I can't explain why there's a rhyme or a reason to it. And it's not the case in all of the themes that we hear in this particular episode. But... It seems like first there's a smaller, quieter version of the episode, like when Sansa and Brienne first enter at Castle Black, and it's kind of combined with the those gongs that we associate, not just with the wall, but with the climate up north. And I mostly associate it with the climate. I think of the wall theme itself and the Night's Watch theme being more closely related, being the same thing. But I don't necessarily think of the gongs as being... A part of that theme. And here's why we hear those gongs being used in other scenes that have nothing to do with the wall. Um, and that to me is an indication of the climate as opposed to uh, a particular group or character. Regardless of that, the theme is played very lightly and then it's even played lightly when John and Sansa first see each other and then it swells into this bigger version There's a lot of that where we hear small versions of the theme in this episode and then later hear larger themes, Uh, but not in all cases. For instance, in the next scene that I'm going to look at, just another familiar theme, we're not breaking anything down this time, just another familiar theme, and it's the chaos is a ladder theme that we hear when Littlefinger is manipulating little Lord Robin uh, in regards to Lord Royce. Uh, which is uh, pretty fascinating in itself. There's a little bit of a setup, which I didn't include in this, but then you hear the main theme of Littlefingers being produced shortly after that. Um, here's that.
1: My lord, I have always been faithful to House Aaron, to your father, to your mother, and now to you. Do Keep leaving, Uncle Peter.
0: So that's just a one shot. We don't hear that theme being really set up, although there is a little bit of the chords of it being played lightly underneath before we get to the main part of the theme. I don't know if you really count that. So we'll say that as far as my theory about for this episode, smaller version of the theme into larger version of the theme, not necessarily all that good so far. I'm only one for two and I'm about to only go one for three because uh, we're going to hear the theme of the sparrows being played next lightly under Marjorie and Loris' conversation when they're in the sept cells and it's the only time we hear this it is faintly played but we don't get it repeated bigger later on uh, but here's that have you, have you told them that that you don't care I just want to stop help me With our current predicament. This, this is okay one for three i'm about as good as a weatherman right now i'm about to get a little better because the next time we get to uh, king tommen and his mother cersei we get a faint version of the reigns of castamere theme which then leads into the scene with uh, cersei and marjorie not marjorie pardon me lady elena Torrell and kevin lannister where they formulate a plan to get marjorie back and i'm sure that there was some kind of plan in there to make uh, lady tyrell look pretty awful however uh we're just concentrating on the music here you will hear a faint version of the reigns of castamere theme here promised him i wouldn't tell anyone if he found out his
1: a whole- breach of confidence which he would not take lightly given his constant prattling about the truth
0: so that was a small introduction and then in the very next scene with Marjorie and Jamie talking to Lady Olena and Kevin Lannister, and they start to formulate a plan, you get a much stronger version of the Reigns of Castamere theme in that scene, like this.
1: Marjorie will repent her sins before the good people of the city.
0: Oh no. That cannot happen.
1: That will, that will not happen. I agree. Do you want Lancel back, or have you given him up for good? Of course I want him back.
0: So now I'm two for four, right? So I'm at 50%. I'm right at weatherman predictability here or or accuracy. One thing that I do want to mention is that when Ramsey kills Osha, and also in parts where John is reading the letter, you hear these weird wispy, airy sounds that, I don't know if you really say they make a melody or anything, but that's something that we associate with Ramsey That happens twice, and then it ends with a very strong version of the Stark theme. For the sake of math and and trying to calculate halves and all of that, I'm not only not going to play the scene, but I'm not going to count it as part of of my accuracy here. Instead, we're going to move on to the next one, which is uh, the Greyjoy theme. We hear it done in a way... As Theon is getting to Pike and seeing Pike for the first time in, I guess, years, then uh, we hear some of the Greyjoy theme. Just the arpeggiations are strong. The melody itself is quite weak, like this. And now here's one for you to debate amongst yourselves. I personally think it's a stronger version of the theme than the version that we just heard. Uh, This is when Yara and Theon are confronting each other and Theon says that she should rule. I feel like it's a a little bit bigger in terms, not necessarily of volume, uh, but just in the instrumentation. It has a stronger instrumentation playing the melody itself rather than just the arpeggiations. Let's check that out
1: listen to you you're the only that one that doesn't where- matter anymore stop crying look at me
0: tell me what you want So in my opinion, that makes me three for five. And if you wanted to include the Ramsey stuff, coupled with the Stark stuff, we could say that I'm, you know, four for six, if you really want to. Uh, If you don't, then I'm just three for five. Or I'm three for six. Either way, you want to do that. Uh, But the final one that we'll look at is Danny, And this first small version of her love in the eyes theme occurs when her and the other Dosh encounter Jorah and Dario. Here's that.
1: You can do more than that. And you're going to help me.
0: i say this definitely makes me at least two out of three right because the love in the eyes theme is played huge after danny gets emerges from the fire um even before that you hear the Dracaris theme being played when she's you know burning the guys up when she's getting rid of all of the 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 calls you hear that as well uh, that doesn't count towards my theme stuff but When she emerges from the fire and you hear the glorious love in the eyes theme that is Danny's, one of the first ones that we've ever associated with Danny, and not only that, but the one that we've associated most with her and fire, uh, that comes up in this particular one. And that's what I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to say, I'm four for six, I'm two for three, uh, and uh, claim a small musical victory or a minor musical defeat. Either way you want to look at it, and I'll be back to talk about the story here in just a moment.
1: Say, get your feet. I see your lekar, I see your kira.
0: Yeri vošeći, yeri vadrivoi. you enjoyed the musical analysis. Time to get into the story of this particular episode, Book of the Stranger, written by Dave and Dan, the showrunners, and directed by Daniel Sackheim. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I tend to try and break things up into pigeonholed categories that uh, help accommodate my OCD in certain ways. Uh, And we start off with the things that we find more emotional or thematic or what have you. We call those on the surface.
1: On the surface.
0: And for me, being on the surface usually is more about the emotional side of things, not even anything related with the story, just the moments that really make you feel. And um, John and Sansa finding each other and hugging and, and they're talking afterwards Um, That was all real emotional for me, that hug especially. Um, Ramin really played the music up there as well, as you heard in my uh, musical analysis. And uh, it really worked in in that particular way. Um, There's a lot more to say about that in the big things. But uh, moving on to a couple of other emotional things, Um, the Theon Yara scene was emotional for me this time. She's just so angry with him and um, the way that she finds yet again to forgive him. And I'm reminded that that's what family is really about. And uh, yeah, thinking about that scene now uh, is <laughs> hard uh, emotionally uh, on a different level now. But it also um, was just, kind of heartwarming in a lot of ways uh, for me this time around as well and and poor Theon, he's just so broken <laughs> and um, he will continue to have recollapses as we go through this season and the next. But uh, hopefully when, by the time we get to the end of season seven, Theon's journey is really you know, in the first season, Theon was just kind of Theon. Right. And then season two is when he starts his decline down um, to the very depths by the time he's in season five and he starts to pull himself out during season five and uh, climbs out a little more during season six and falls back in another hole in season six and season seven. These kind of things happen. And when you think about the kind of trauma he's been through. um, But here's my hope. And that is that after we've seen season seven and the way his arc into there where he's going to go find Yara and what have you. Hopefully um, we'll be back to not an arrogant or cocky or stupid Theon like we saw in season one, but somebody who's really learned his lessons and somebody who is, you can believe in them again. So I believe, you know, I hope that that's what happens for him in season eight. Um, at least right up until the point where he dies, (laughs) which is likely to happen for a lot of these characters in season eight. I mean, come on. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, very emotional scene for me when he returned home and the schooling that Yara gave him and, um, how dysfunctional he was, except in that one true reason for coming back. Um, even though he didn't know it at the time. It was just when he landed on the shores. I don't know what he was expecting um, if Balon had been alive. Um, We certainly know that Balon could have cared less about Theon um, when Ramsay had him. So um, it's kind of fortuitous for Theon to be able to get back on this path simply for the fact that Balon is in fact dead, and the King Smoot is in front of them. Uh, I said an awful lot about that. I I did like uh, the humor at Castle Black as well. Um, The the dinner scene, at least. Uh, And up until the time that they get the message, then everything takes a a dark turn. But um, I think Kelly pointed out in an earlier podcast episode about how in season six, you know, the writers feel okay with just having goofy stupid humorous moments which is something that I actually had enjoyed that they didn't have in the series uh, while they were still tied to the books but Kelly makes a point you know it's like some of this stuff is so dark it's it's good to just laugh about things once in a while and there are some other humorous moments in this episode as well Um, but that's uh the one that stuck out to me the most was just those looks between Brienne and Torman and the way Brienne's just sitting there and watching everybody eat and just kinda of going, Who are you people? Uh, I thought that was great. <laughs> uh another really cool scene, uh, and, and a little bit emotional for me too, was that um that initial Jorah Dario scene that we got in this particular episode. Um, where they're talking about Daenerys, um, and kind of throwing things up in each other's face about certain things, and then Jorah gives the grayscale revelation um, to Dario, and uh, it really sets up um, in the next step, which is very emotional when he tells Danny what's wrong with him, and he she sends him away to find a cure. Um, and of course, we all know that 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 works all out okay. So it's not nearly as a as a oh what the heck kind of thing as it probably was during season five and season six. Um, obviously, uh, but everybody's in peril in season eight, so it doesn't really matter in that respect. I don't suppose. Uh, but I really like the way that this. Revelation really sets it You understand why Dario just kind of sits back and lets things happen between Danny and Jorah uh, in the next episode. I thought that that was really great. But we've got a lot to talk about as far as Danny goes uh, up in the big things. And I suppose with that last little moment of talking about these emotional things, let's move on to the big things for this episode.
1: Three big things.
0: And for the first big thing, I want to go back to John and Sansa. And Bubba kind of made fun of me on an occasion in the last podcast. You know, the whole deterministic universe, the magic has a plan. As I used to say, just like the island has a plan for Lost. The magic does have a plan. If Sansa doesn't show up at the time she does... I mean, John's getting ready to head out of there, right? And he's not interested in anything else regarding the wall. At least not until they would possibly break through like they did at the end of Season 7. He's not interested in Winterfell. He's not interested in any of that. And it's because Sansa escapes when she does and gets to Castle Black when she does and convinces John to go to Winterfell to take back their home to make sure that they can be safe. If she doesn't make those arguments, Jon just kind of goes on his own. And Melisandre's not going to convince him of anything. I don't think. Who knows what Davos does? All of this stuff kind of aligns in a lot of ways, because the magic has a plan. John is to face the Night King at some point. Not only that, but John, being the true heir to the Iron Throne, as we now know. He takes the first step by getting to Winterfell and taking it. But none of that happens if Sansa doesn't get here. And I love... Sansa's way of convincing him. They don't stick around long enough for them to get the letter from the new Lord Bolton. That letter's kind of a downer, isn't it? Uh, but all of these things, the fact that they have Rick on, all of these things convince John to do what he exactly doesn't want to do. He says, to, I love in that Conversation. I mean, he directly vocalizes Alistair's Thorn's words that he just heard. He fought and he lost. The difference being is, as Alistair even pointed out, he doesn't get to rest like Alistair did. He doesn't get to just let it all go because of all of these circumstances that come to a head. And the letter itself was a really nice book reader nod to the letter that Jon actually gets before he's killed in the books. But you really got to admire the way Sansa picked up that letter and finished it. Um, And that's the linchpin for Jon to take Winterfell. And one other thing about Sansa that I feel is important as far as future episodes go, especially the Battle of the Bastards and the fact that she does call for Littlefinger later on who by the way little fingers kind of folds into this he's already gone and convinced robin uh we'll eh, we'll talk about that in the tidbits i suppose but uh i do admire how Sansa knows her husband ramsay so well that you know She just knows that he was the one who killed Roos. And whether they'd heard anything about Roos dying or not, she knows what the truth is. And it's a good indication of Sansa's growing, not necessarily all-knowing in any stretch of the imagination, but her advice is usually, especially in regards to Ramsay, is very good. Even though it's ignored quite often, it's completely sound. She does know how Ramsay is, and she tries to make a point to John several times that you know she does know how he goes, and she relays to John exactly what's going to happen. She didn't need to look in the flames for that. But Melisandre is also all part of this. She's seeing the things that in the flames. She saw Jon Snow with them at Winterfell. Now she sees just him at Winterfell, I suppose. But all of this stuff doesn't come to pass unless Sansa arrives when Sansa does. Further evidence of a deterministic universe? We could ask that question you know, for the umpteenth time for this season. Uh, because once the door episode happens, I think a lot of people started actually thinking it that way. Remember, every fictional universe is a deterministic universe because the writer decides what happens, not the characters, in a lot of ways. I know some authors say that they let the books kind of write themselves and they just see where it goes, but I mean, come on, they still have to find a way to make it all fit together, right? So it every fictional universe is deterministic in that way from a technical aspect. But is it deterministic to the characters is the big question. Anyway, uh, that's one of my big things. My second big thing is really kind of about King's Landing in a lot of ways. You have the Lannisters and the Tyrells having one last alliance in many ways to try and get Marjorie out. And why Cersei's making this ploy, well, I think we find out later. But, nonetheless, it still is one of these deals that uh, is a big deal for the series. It's the culmination. One last alliance that fails, by the way. On the flip side of that, the stuff going on in the Sept is probably a little more surfacey, but I do want to mention it. I thought that all of the acting by... You know Natalie Dormer, especially Finn Jones, and <laughs> amazingly by John Jonathan Price. Um, all of that acting was excellent, and and Price's monologue is excellently written, and the way it's shot is really compelling. Also, mm-hmm. and I know that in the last episode, Bubba had to ask, you know, well, what kind of contribution did Sackheim really make? I don't recall too many shots where a person has a long monologue and the camera just kind of slowly moves in on them a little bit in in one long shot. It's an amazing piece of acting by Jonathan Price and it's amazing shot in a lot of ways. It's not a typical Game of Thrones shot. So, no, there was a little bit of flair, but not anything special flair in the Tower of Joy sequence. This may be Daniel Sackheim's crowning achievement. As far as within the series, from a, a technical aspect, the other thing that you have to see that's going on, obviously, as Marjorie is telling Loris, they're using me to try and tear you down." well, obviously Loris is already torn down. It was the flip side of things there. They were actually using Loris to try and tear Marjorie down a little bit more. And that's just a really compelling scene um, to see the Tyrells in such a spot. And it gets better for the Tyrells briefly in this season before then, of course, Cersei pulls her trick and, and everything's gone. So that is my second big thing, is the stuff going on in King's Landing. My last big thing, of course, is Daenerys. And once again, and I I know that Bubba had made a comment about this, that it it just all feels like kind of a repeat. I feel that things repeating in this particular story are important because why have such a rich history if you can't see the relationship between what has happened before and what is happening now? And here I'm specifically talking about Danny and emerging from a fire to the be worshipped by the Dothraki, more or less. Except this time, instead of just a single horde, she pretty much has the entire Dothraki nation at her back. And that is huge, of course. She, in Season 7, of course, tells Jon that she was the first to get the Dothraki to ever get on a boat. And she actually did that at the end of season one. Again, emerging from a fire. This time with a whole army. She will do the exact same thing. And that's a pretty amazing feat in itself. To change a culture. Danny is a signifying culture changer. She made a point to try and eliminate slavery all along Slaver's Bay. She makes a point to change cultures the Dothraki would never go over the poison water until her. all of these things are huge and of course her relationship with with Jora and with Dario and the awkwardness of the triangle and all of that stuff makes for really good side storytelling right? I love all of it. Um, I know a lot of people, we're kind of like, oh, here we go again, blah, blah, blah. Again, I say history must repeat itself sometimes. Um, it's funny that we learn lessons from history, but do we really learn them until they happen again and again and again and we start to see the repeating pattern? And the only lesson to be learned here is that Danny is special. I know book readers for a long time have said, and and this is because this is something George Had said, they said that the incident with Danny and the pyre in the Game of Thrones novel was a special occurrence, a miraculous occurrence. But to me, it's not the occurrence that's miraculous, it's Daenerys that is miraculous. Because this is really, to me, at least the third time that we've seen Danny resist fire. There was the first time at the Pyre, there was the second time with the dragons at the House of the Undying, and then there was the third time, which is is this time. Now, I will say this, I never bought into the just one time Danny" thing, even if George said it, simply for the fact that when I read A Dance of Dragons, I interpreted when, if you recall in season five, when Drogon turns and starts to breathe on her. I actually interpreted that from the books as it being him releasing fire. And I feel like that that is just my own interpretation, and most people call me crazy for that interpretation. But obviously the show didn't go that route either, so maybe I am crazy. But either way, it would have been an extreme amount of heat, and she doesn't seem to be bothered by any of that, uh, in that, uh, what is it? The ninth episode of season five in the dance of dragons. So I feel like Danny's being miraculous is her resistance to fire. And what will that mean for season eight? Who knows? Will it mean anything? Will she have to personally set herself and the night King on fire? In some way, in order to kill him. We've, we've seen that the White Walkers seem to be able to douse fire out anyway. So I, I don't exactly know what her fire resistance or her dragons will do for the overall story. But it must have something to do with it. Because I do believe that the whole Azora High principle isn't just a single person. Yes, maybe John is the prince that was promised. As Melisandre says throughout most of season six. But I think that we feel, by the time Melisandre sees Daenerys on Dragonstone, that maybe she has even changed her mind. And she sees that it needs a team network to create the Azor Ahai in a lot of ways. Not unlike the book thing about the, what was it, the 12 companions or what have you, um, and the lone hero Um, There's stories in that. And all of those historical stories, once again, just like with Daenerys, are meant to repeat themselves. And that, to me, is a really huge thing. I don't suppose I really have any questions for this particular episode, so I'm going to skip straight to the smaller points that I'm going to try and mine out of this episode. Those we call tidbits.
1: Tidbits. Tidbits.
0: And in the tidbits, it's kind of just a cleanup this time around of, of what else is going on. First of all, we got to pour one out for poor old Osha. Her seduction ploy that works so well with Theon did not work at all this time. And I don't know what she was thinking anyway, because even if she manages to kill Ramsey, I mean, do you think she's getting out of there alive? Do you think she's not jeopardizing Rick and more by doing that? It just, it seemed like a a not well thought out plan. But we never give Osha that much credit for being all of that smart either. Do admire her courage. Absolutely. And it was sad to see her go. But they didn't have any place for Rickon. And so they got to milk another compelling death out of uh, that whole storyline by taking care of Osha first. So that's one small point. Um, Let's talk about Tyrion for a minute. I love his peace efforts in in this particular episode and the way he shows that he can be diplomatic. Ultimately, though, let's look at Tyrion's record. His record with Joffrey as Hand of the King was fairly decent, although it did result in some bad things. Him sending Marcella to Dorne ultimately led to Marcella's death. Uh, he did manage to hold off Stannis during the Black Battle of Blackwater, but only long enough for his father to actually come in and win the battle. Tyrion was, uh, was going to lose that battle if it had not been for his father. So, other than being able to play the personal game with, say, like a Pycelle and a Littlefinger and a, a Varys, um... Tyrion hasn't been all that great. One thing he does do well with Daenerys is he counsels her not to become the Mad King in some ways. He even fails at that a little bit with the whole, uh, you know, Tarly story in Season 7. And his military strategy in terms of taking uh, his home... His ancestral home, Casterly Rock. That that doesn't work out so well for him. And the alliance that he builds helps to build with the Greyjoys, with Yara and Theon, with Dorne, with Elena Tyrell. All of that doesn't seem to matter by the end of Season 7 either. Every, all, of, all of that seems to be kind of washed up. So... There's still a whole slew of Dornish people down in Dorn. I don't know what that's going to work out to, if it, anything at all. Um, whoever isn't with Yara and Theon and survived are now either dead or prisoners of Euron, who is the king of the Iron Islands. So, yeah, there's not much in Tyrion's favor as to what he's done right. But here, at least, he did buy peace almost long enough for Danny to get back. And I guess you measure that as kind of a success in a lot of ways. But in truth of the matter, Grey Worm was absolutely right in their conversation at the end. And that is, just as we see in a couple of episodes, you know, they're not going to change. Slow or fast. You know, and That, to me, is an indication, once again, of Tyrion not being the sole all-knowing guy like he proclaims to be. That whole, I drink and I know things, quote, uh, that people either love or hate. Um, Well, it's true, he does drink, he does know things, but does he know the right things? And not to be too hard on poor old evil Uncle Tyrion as Bubba likes to call him. But um, the way that the show has tried to address what is, in the books, a purely dark side of Tyrion, um, and instead they just kind of dress it up to make him kind of incompetent in ways. I think that the book Tyrion is a little more interesting in that he's never incompetent, but he is darn dark. Um, Whereas here, not so much he's he's darn light but he just doesn't always see things really clearly and I'm sure how I feel about that just saying just saying and then I do have uh, this one last little piece here for a tidbit and that is Littlefinger who I started to mention in the big things but I decided to save it for here so I'd have more space to say things Or more time saying things. Littlefinger is really, really good at manipulating Robin, is he not? Uh, And now he's moving the knights in to help Sansa. Even though Sansa doesn't really want anything to do with him. Just the fact that a few of Littlefinger's words were so manipulative to Robin that Lord Royce almost went through the moon door. One of the most prominent families in all of the Vale almost lost its patron, its, its paternity, its father, its male figure. That was close. That was close. And that was little finger flexing a little bit for Royce to know that, you know, stay in line but it was still uh, interesting. And Littlefinger's told so many lies about the whole Sansa situation now. He's told lies to Cersei. He's told lies now to Lord Royce. He's telling lies to everybody that you kind of wonder if he even has kept track of what his own personal truth is about Sansa. And uh, he tries to act on whatever that is in season seven. And of course we see that it fails dramatically. And I guess that's all I have to really say about this episode. I'm sure you have lots of other thoughts. Like I said, I'm not sure if we're going to do a feedback podcast in the future or not. However, if you have thoughts that you want to share, send them in via email. At some point, I will get around to answering um, any of the emails that I get. Uh, Even if we don't get them on the podcast, I would really want to hear your thoughts about anything in regards to Season 6. Super enjoyed talking to you. But we still got two other segments left. One is Three Words, and the other one is the Brothelmates of the episode. That's next.
1: Three Words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words.
0: Three words, that's where you try to describe this particular episode in three words. And uh, not to be too lame here or to be too lost-like, but my three words this time around are magic is planning. And that's all about Sansa. And about Theon and Yara because the king's mood is about to come up and Theon's going to speak for Yara and their lives will change forever after that as well. And what else is going on? There's there's so many things going on where, you know, is it the gods? Is it magic generated by humans specifically? What what powers dragons in this world? You know, it, it's all of these things. Uh, that just say that there's a lot of pieces moving now, and uh, we're coming up on a big episode as well, uh, where even more information will drop, and you'll hear Bubba and Holly and I talking about that. Uh, But the magic does have a plan, and it's now setting it in motion. So, magic is planning, are my three words for this particular episode. If you have three words, feel free to submit them, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, m-a-t-t-s-audioblog at gmail.com, or Matt's G-O-T blog on the Twitter, m-a-t-t-s-g-o-t blog on Twitter. And I can't guarantee that we'll go through them all in a feedback podcast, but I'd love to get yours anyway. Uh, And you need the practice because we will be doing those in season eight as well. And I hope that people will submit new sets of Three Words and Brothel Mates, which will be the next segment, for each new episode when it airs. In the meantime, there is music playing underneath here if you're listening on a podcast app. If you're just listening on YouTube, sorry, I can't give you the music here because YouTube has silly rules. Despite any kind of amount of money that I'm paying in royalties, despite anything... That I have in terms of a signed agreement for my BMI license and what have you. Doesn't matter to YouTube. They're like, if we can't sell it, you can't sell it. Is more or less what they're saying. And I'm like, eh, fine. I just won't put any of it on underneath. But if you're listening on a podcast app. Then you can definitely, definitely, definitely hear music going on underneath me, or at the beginning of the podcast, or at the end of the podcast. Please look in the show notes and acknowledge the musicians that are playing that music. You don't have to buy their stuff. You don't even have to click on any links that I give you, um, and to to give them you know web clicks or whatever. I mean, I'm not getting paid by the click. They aren't getting paid by the click, most likely either. They could care less. What they want you to do is remember their names. So that we can become immortal. People become immortal in different ways. Baseball stars become immortal by being put in the Hall of Fame, right? Firefighters become immortal by being memorialized if they do something in the line of duty. Musicians, all we got is word of mouth. That's really all we got in order to become immortal. The amount of records that we sell doesn't mean to anything to anybody except the record company. And an occasional scholar who looks at, you know, the bottom line dollar sign and thinks, Oh, sold a million CDs. Oh, you must be good. No, that's not the, necessarily the case. The reason he sold a million CDs is because a million people knew who the person was and wanted to buy it. Or they heard the music and they wanted to find out who the person was and then they bought it. It's all about knowing what the name of the person is that creates the music. And that's why I ask you to make me immortal by remembering my name to make Don Weber immortal by remembering her name to make the three Looperman musicians who make themes with me all the time to make them immortal just remember who they are brothelmates of the episode is next
1: little words little letters simply The best coupling of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary.
0: mates of the episode does not have to be two people. It can be a person and an object, a person and a concept, a person and an emotion even. And that's all fine and well. whatever you want to do, you can send yours into Matt's Audioblog at gmail.com or you can tweet to Matt's GOT blog on Twitter. I've got a couple sets this time around. One is two people. I would get a lot of trouble from a lot of fans. If I did not do the Tormund, Giant Giantsbane Brienne coupling, Tormund is already totally enamored by Brienne from the very moment she rides in the gate. He's like, who is that big woman? She reminds me of a bear. It's funny how we associate the bear and the maiden fair with Brienne. And Tormund isn't necessarily seeing the maiden fair. He's seeing the bear. And he loves it because he knows how to handle a bear, right? Okay, I'm being silly now. Um, And I don't want to make any kind of bestiality references, nor do I want to compare Brienne to an actual bear. But um, to Tormund, she is definitely a bear. And he definitely wants her. And that's all good. And Brienne doesn't know what to think about it. She's just kind of like, Oh, get this guy to stop staring at me, please. So, it's not a reciprocating couple, but Tormund's bought it. He, he's, he's, got, he's already fallen. He's fallen hard, and he's going to continue to fall. Right down the side of a wall, most likely. Uh, we'll see him at the bottom of that wall at the beginning of Season 8. No? He survived? Him and Beric survived? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. That's all I'll say about that. My second set, of course, is Daenerys and Worship. She wins the worship of all of those Dothraki in her moments emerging from that fire. Again, everybody can say, well, it's just a repeat of what happened in season one. It is. But just like the difference between, oh, taking over a county in Missouri, you know, I took over St. Francis County. This is different. This isn't just the whole state of Missouri. This is the whole continent of North America. In a lot of ways, this is a huge army that she is supplementing with an already huge army that she has with the unsullied. It's an amazing uh, growth in military might. And just the fact that she gets them to change thousands of years of culture. We will never go over the poison water. She did it with a small group at the beginning of. Uh, Season 2 or the end of Season 2 Beginning of Season 3 Now she's got a massive Group going with her And uh, we'll see how she Really kind of solidifies that In an episode to come Um, Well I guess This podcast we won't but You would if you continue watching the Season 6 Episodes and like I said I don't Know when we'll be back but we will be back Either right on Or shortly before Season 8
1: can make it take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you, for me and you, for me and you, for
0: me and you. So, thanks once again for listening to this particular podcast. I know that after all of the great guests that we've had over the last few seasons. Just hearing me by myself is probably pretty damn boring and probably pretty damn pointless. But I appreciate you sticking with me nonetheless. Don't forget, this isn't the last episode. This is the second to last episode until Season 8. We will get to Episode 60 where we will look at The Door. The terrible episode in a lot of ways because we lose uh, poor old Hodor. But... In other ways it's a very enlightening Episode So we have Bubba and Holly coming up for that This coming Thursday And like I said I will stay in touch I will try and update the feed uh, As soon as possible With a a more solid schedule And content For this podcast for season 8 In the meantime we'll see you on Thursday With Bubba and Holly for the door Take care
1: been listening to Matt's audio blog. Find all contact information, back episodes, and podcast app links at mattsaudioblog.com.